Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Dr. Edward Bork is the Matisse Chair in Rangeland Ecology and Management and Director of Rangeland Research Institute at the University of Alberta. He has been teaching and conducting research for more than 25 years on basic and applied topics, including integrated weed control, grazing systems, fire ecology, forage production, agroforestry, and recently the role of rangelands in providing alternative ecosystem goods and services including carbon storage, greenhouse gas reduction, and biodiversity retention. He has supervised 48 graduate students, including 11 PhD students. Dr. Bork maintains close ties to the agriculture industry and has given numerous extension talks. Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Bork. Thank you so much for joining me to discuss the carbon cycle and beef production. Thank you, Chantel. Good morning, everyone. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. We're glad that you could make this work. I wanted to start with a quote from the Beef Cattle Research Council website on their page called Carbon Cycle and Beef Cattle, which I obtained on January 13th, 2023. And the quote says, every living thing contains carbon and everything, including cattle, grasslands, and people are part of the carbon cycle. Raising beef cattle can have both positive and negative impacts on the carbon cycle and different management practices can increase or decrease the sector's carbon footprint. And this is generally what we're going to be talking about in our discussion today. I have linked that article in the show notes for all of our listeners. So if you're looking for more information, I would strongly encourage you go and follow that link. So to start off today, can you give listeners a bit of information on your background in agriculture and your research interests in beef production? Sure. So I've been at the University of Alberta for around 25 years now, and I've been doing research in rangelands and pasture systems for closer to 35 years, so pretty long period of time. Uh, My work is wide-ranging, including everything from forage agronomy to landscape ecology to grazing systems. And over the last 15 years, I've done a lot more work in the area of alternative environmental goods and services. So looking at the role of grasslands in providing biodiversity, providing carbon storage, serving as a medium for greenhouse gas mitigation, and so on. 
Wonderful. Thank you. The study of greenhouse gases and carbon cycling in beef production is a big and complex topic. Generally speaking, why is this so important? Well, carbon is really a backbone of, of all living life forms. So, you know, including us. So when you look at everything from, from the food cycle and the food chain that we rely on through to the basic ecosystems that support all of society and all of the living terrestrial components that we rely on for various environmental goods and services, it's really about understanding that carbon, where is it, how is it moving, and how is it being influenced by everything that we're doing in terms of our land use footprint. And of course, carbon and carbon cycling also feeds back to climate, which, as we know, agricultural producers are profoundly affected by everything from heat waves to drought and growing conditions, floods, and so on. So there's a very close link between the carbon cycle itself, not only because we rely on it directly, but indirectly through climate. And that's a really good point. And I know that's been kind of a topic of conversation on many of our episodes in the past few months has been kind of the climate changes and what producers are seeing on their own farms and how they're working to kind of work with that. Before we get into how different practices impact the carbon cycle, I'd like to just take a few minutes and discuss what the carbon cycle is and a few terms that are used in talking about the carbon cycle, just to familiarize myself and our listeners a bit more with the topic. So can you start off by giving us a brief explanation of what the carbon and methane cycles look like in different aspects of beef production? Sure. So when you look at the ultimate role of what grasslands do, which, and grasslands are a very key component of the forged substrate production system that every single you know beef cow essentially relies on at some point in its in its life cycle, whether it's in a feedlot or whether it's out on open pasture. And if you look at where that carbon comes from, it's basically through photosynthesis, which is plants basically taking that carbon out of the atmosphere, converting it into some kind of structural carbohydrates, including complex sugars and simple sugars that are in the plant itself. And then we're essentially using our cattle as harvesters of that carbon. So the process of our cattle feeding out there, they're ingesting those complex carbohydrates. Um, the carbon is going into the rumen, microbes are breaking that down, and in the process, they're either generating energy for the animal, or they're helping provide weight gain through metabolism for that animal. And what they don't use is essentially cycling out the other end in their fecal material, and it's going back to the soil, and that kind of completes the, the, the whole cycle. So essentially, you can think of cattle as carbon harvesters and carbon processors and the same applies to the nutrients that they're consuming the different you know nitrogen phosphorus and so on they're simply processing those nutrients over time and if a grassland is being sustainably managed that carbon cycling and nutrient cycling is fairly stable i like that term of carbon harvester i feel like often beef cattle production has such a negative light and negative terms used when they're talking about the carbon cycle. So that just being a harvester to me sounds so much more positive. What would you say is the difference in the impact between carbon dioxide and methane when it comes to global warming? Methane is actually found at much, much lower concentrations in the atmosphere. However, 
what we call the global warming potential, which is the ability of methane to essentially contribute to increases in atmospheric temperature simply because uh, the molecules are more proficient at basically trapping heat over time. The warming coefficient is much, much higher for methane, 28 times higher. So that means it doesn't take a lot of methane to really be equivalent to a fairly large amount of carbon dioxide. So even though we often think about carbon in terms of carbon dioxide and rising CO2 levels and this, this movement of carbon, the small amounts of carbon that are associated with the methane cycle are still very, very important. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, I talked about cattle being carbon harvesters and that they're processing that carbon. A byproduct of that rumen microbe activity, the, the microbes in the rumen that basically break down these complex structural carbohydrates, they also produce methane. So part of that carbon that they're consuming actually ends up being released as methane. And that's, of course, a potential cause of concern if you think about that it might be contributing to increases in atmospheric methane. What a lot of people are not aware of, though, if you look at grasslands and grassland ecosystems, especially healthy grassland soils, so well-managed grassland soils, they contain microbes that can either release methane or basically metabolize methane. So these are called methanotrophs. So you can think of them as methane eaters. And what a lot of folks are not aware of is that a healthy grassland soil actually typically functions as a net methane sink which means you have more methane that is being catabolized or metabolized, taken out of the atmosphere than it's actually put in. So if you think of the entire beef production system on pasture, you know, most people just think of the cattle that are out there producing methane through this complex rumen fermentation process. But the very soil that those cattle are standing on is also serving as a potential sink for methane, where methane is being removed from the atmosphere. So to look at the total methane dynamics, you need to understand both of those processes. And the methane consumption that occurs in a healthy soil, it maybe doesn't remove or compensate for all of the methane that's produced by cattle through what we call this uh, enteric fermentation. It at least compensates for a significant portion of it, maybe around 20 or 25 percent, which is not trivial. And that leads really well into my next question because you're already using some of the wording that I was going to ask you about. So can you give us a definition and an explanation of what a carbon source and a carbon sink are? Yeah, so there, you know, you can think of just like cattle are carbon harvesters and they're processing this carbon and it's moving basically through part of this digestive system over time. But we also have in addition to the methane production that cattle are going through, but we also have respiration going on. So all living creatures are basically generating CO2 through respiration. And the larger, the single largest form of respiration is really soil microbes, which are in the ground beneath our feet. And as they basically turn over carbon, they're releasing large amounts of CO2 to the atmosphere. At the same time, plants are taking up CO2, so that completes the carbon cycle. So we have this CO2 being taken out of the atmosphere by photosynthesis, and then it's being processed by different consumers like cattle or by people through the food chain. And then eventually through respiration, 
it's being broken down and released back to the atmosphere. Now, if you look at on balance, where is that carbon moving? Is there more carbon moving to the atmosphere? Then in that case, you can think of the ecosystem as a potential source of CO2. It means there's more CO2 being released than what is going back into the ecosystem through photosynthesis. If, on the other hand, the opposite is actually happening, where plants are taking up more CO2 and there's more carbon that's being immobilized within the soil than what's being released through, let's say, respiration, then the ecosystem becomes a net sink. And so, you know, when we look at these really large global carbon cycles, we're really interested in understanding which ecosystems can be a potential net sink of carbon, which means we're growing the size of the pool or stock of carbon within those areas, because that would be then a potential way to reduce the size of the atmospheric CO2 levels that ultimately are a concern when we think about climate change. And what is the biogenic carbon cycle? So biogenic carbon cycle, that's really just a fancy word that refers to all of the living components of the biological carbon cycle. So if you think of photosynthesis by plants, that's certainly a component of the biological carbon cycle. And then, of course, if you think about cattle as our forage harvesters and our, our carbon harvesters, they're essentially a part of that, as are the soil microbes in the soil. This, I guess, is in comparison to the mineral carbon cycle, which would include large amounts of, let's say, dissolved CO2 that's in the oceans. And when you think of the amount of uh, calcium carbonate, for example, that's in many areas of the world, those are also significant stocks of carbon, but they're not influenced by biological activity, by plants, by animals, by soil microbes per se. What global temperature changes have been noticed over time? And what are the concerns from this looking from a global perspective? I want, I want to approach this two ways. The first one is to recognize that all of our natural environments have experienced fluctuations in environmental conditions. So even if you look at the prairies of Western Canada, for example, we've gone through warmer, drier periods. We've gone through cooler, wetter periods. And this is part of the kind of the, the natural fluctuations that many of these, these regions experience, including, of course, the Ice Age that we went through. That, that was another one of those very significant, rather profound deviation in our in our climatic regime. What we do see now, and this is what's particularly alarming over the last, you know, 60 to 80 years, is you see this very marked increase in temperature. That is, when you look at the rate of change in temperature, it's extreme enough to the point that we don't typically see that quick a rate of change of temperature. And that is also accompanied by an increase in heat waves, it's also accompanied by an increase in the frequency and the magnitude of droughts. And these are becoming more widespread in many areas. And when you look at the relationship between this increase in CO2 levels, the increase in temperatures and the corollary impact that it has on drought, flooding, heat waves, and so on, it's pretty clear that at least a portion of our ongoing climate change situation that we're in now 
is associated with some of the impacts that we're having as a society in terms of land use change and fossil fuel burning and so on. And if we kind of bring it back from that global perspective and look more closely just in at Canadian agriculture, what impacts does global warming have for producers and consumers here in Canada? So if you're if you're a rancher or a farmer, the first thing, you know, and, and folks in Western Canada are all too familiar with this because in the last three years, we've had everything from extreme flooding in my area here in the Edmonton area. As an example, I actually live and 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 still help operate a farm east of Edmonton. And we had upwards of 20 inches plus of rain in 2020 over a two-month period. The entire moisture regime in my area is typically 16 to 17 inches. We got 20 inches in two months. So what we are seeing are extremes in either too much moisture or not enough moisture, as we saw the following year in 2021. And that was a much more widespread drought across much of the prairies of Western Canada. So if you're a farmer or rancher, you need to be fully aware that these extreme climatic events are going to occur. It's not whether they're going to occur. It's when and how long are they going to be and how profound an impact are they going to have on your operation. And so, you know, this comes down to expecting drought. It comes down to expecting heat waves and making sure that you have a management regime that you can ride out those very significant levels of risk, because that's what drought is. Drought is a form of risk. Heat waves are a form of risk when you wind up losing your crops or you wind up with animals that are heat stressed. So, and in terms of consumers, if your agricultural system is much more variable in terms of its productivity, it means you're gonna go through boom bust cycles in terms of food stability. So it means that if you have extended periods of drought, for example, and you go through a reduction in the availability of, of beef in the supply chain, that means that beef is going to become more expensive. Uh, and similarly, it also means you know maybe you're not a, into eating beef, but maybe you're into eating other forms of protein. And it will mean that there's less feed grain to go into supporting the pork industry and the poultry industry. And that means that those commodities are going to become more expensive. So if you're a consumer, expect higher prices. And that closely correlates with the increase in variability that we're going to experience at the farm gate level. It's going to happen. And we're going to talk a little bit more uh, later on about how producers can maybe make their farms a bit more resilient to those climate changes, knowing that they're going to occur. But kind of controversial to that and a viewpoint that I hadn't really thought about before, are there any unintended positive outcomes from global warming for producers? Yeah, so this is a, I think that's a great question. And I often get posed this question by producers a few years ago, I had a producer who said, you know, I my yields are much, much higher on my crops than they've ever been before. And I think it has to do with the higher CO2 levels. And so there is there is a little bit of truth to that, because if you have higher CO2 levels, your plants are able to take up CO2 more quickly. And in the process, they're able to increase their rate of photosynthesis. So there is some truth to that. However, there's two caveats. And the first one I would point out that 
the increases that we see right now in terms of our agricultural production are really driven by a lot of agronomic improvements, including improvements on the, the genomic side in terms of the, the, the crops and their vigor, but also on the input side, right? I mean, precision agriculture and the quality of fertilizer and herbicides and, and pesticides are, are much better than they've, they've ever been. So that's something that, that I think we really need to kind of factor in. The increase in efficiency of, of photosynthesis by these plants is typically not large enough to be able to offset the large increase in other risks. For example, if you're suffering from drought, ongoing chronic drought, your reduction in yields associated with, with the lack of water, they're going to more than offset any improvements that you get through increased efficiency of photosynthesis because you have this higher CO2. So while there is this small boost in photosynthetic efficiency, it's typically not large enough to offset that added risk of drought and heat and flooding and what that brings in terms of agricultural production. So when we're thinking about those climate change risks, like you've mentioned, drought, flooding, those really extreme heat waves, how can producers be adapting their practices to create farms that are resilient? to the changing climate? So my, my first recommendation would be that producers need to be aware that these things are going to happen and that they're probably be going to become more normal or more frequent over time. So expect them. And if producers are expecting them, then they will factor them in proactively into their management. So what you do not wanna be doing if you're a cattle producer, for example, is reacting to a drought. Because if you're reacting to a drought, it means you've usually waited too long into the summer, for example, to figure out that you're not going to have enough feed, and then you're going to end up selling into a declining market because everyone's liquidating a whole pile of surplus animals that they don't have feed for. And it also means if you're a producer, if you're thinking ahead, it means, for example, making sure that you have a conservative stocking rate over time so that you're stockpiling enough feed from one year to the next so you have a bit of a buffer zone to get you through a one-year drought or maybe even a two-year drought. And I think this is one of the reasons that, you know, if you're a producer in the really arid parts of Western Canada, let's say in the Swift Current or Medicine Hat area, you expect drought on a regular basis, or at least you expect very significant moisture deficits. And that means those producers tend to factor that into their planning. They use really low stocking rates and they stockpile as much feed as they can in anticipation of drought. But if you're operating in the Saskatoon area or in the Edmonton area or Calgary area, when drought hits, it tends to be much more catastrophic simply because people haven't factored that into their thinking. They, they always think it's going to rain. It always rains. We're going to be okay. So, First thing is expect those extreme events, plan for them, and do simple things like plan ahead your grazing cycle, stockpile your grass, use a more conservative stocking rate. And in, in that case, you're going to be able to ride out those events much more readily. Thinking of agriculture and beef production, how is carbon sequestration and emissions measured or monitored? And what problems do these calculations have? Monitoring carbon, both carbon stock in grasslands, 
but also the changes in carbon over time are a major, major challenge, in part because if we look at our pastoral systems, they tend to be really variable. So there's a lot of patchiness, both because we've got this landscape effect, then we've got this herbivore effect, and, and cattle typically are not, you know, they don't defoliate everything perfectly uniformly. They have their preferred areas, much like we do, and that means you get this patchiness. So you get a lot of variability in how much carbon is stored and how that carbon is turning over over time. Now, trying to measure that over large land, a large variable landscape in real time is problematic. It's very problematic. So a lot of what's typically done is modeling, where we tend to develop models that hopefully provide some kind of reasonable predictive framework for understanding how, where, when, and why that carbon is going to change. I would argue that models are only as good as the data that you have. So if you don't have good data underlying the models, then it's, you know, the principle is junk in, junk out. <laughs> you know, if it's weak data in, it's, it's, it's not very good projection out. Now, why is this so important? It's so important because if we're going to recognize the value of carbon storage, for example, within our agricultural systems, especially within our pastoral systems, our grazing lands, then we need to have a really reliable way of quantifying any change in carbon over time. So, for example, if you implement a reduction in stocking rate or a specialized grazing system that's intended to store more carbon, you know, you need to show that empirically. And so the challenge is, is the methodology available right now? And it's probably not. So because of that, at least our stance has been, we're trying to build up much more robust quantitative data sets that support these modeling efforts to the point where we can have a much higher degree of certainty and confidence that we actually understand where, when, and how carbon is going to change relative to the management practice we're implementing. And how would you say the Canadian beef industry kind of as a whole, has improved its environmental footprint over the years? And can you share research outcomes showing this improvement? So many of the areas that are being targeted, at least most recently, are in areas where there's a higher degree of certainty, again, in terms of this predictability of knowing what the outcome is. For example, if we can increase beef feed production efficiency, it means we're going to produce more beef with less feed inputs, and that has a lower carbon footprint. So if we reduce the time on feed, it, that's another way that we can do it. In other words, if you're finishing an animal in the feedlot, for example, for 30 days instead of 60 days, and it's because of enhanced feed efficiency, then that would mean that we can produce per kilogram of beef it'll have a lower carbon footprint per kilogram of beef. Those are very positive, tangible improvements. On the grazing side, which is the area that I'm very, very interested in, we've been doing work on, for example, the use of, of specialized grazing systems to understand how that might change plant growth and the biomass accumulation and, and the grassland as a potential sink for carbon and the ability to store more carbon in surface soils. 
we're making significant progress and some of the work that we've done on adaptive multi-paddock grazing, which is a specialized form of grazing where you take an area and divide it into much smaller paddocks and get really tight control over where, when, and how often animals graze and give these long rest periods to individual paddocks so that they can recover and maintain high growth rates. And we've been seeing really, really encouraging results in terms of some of the, the improvements not just to carbon storage with plant growth, but even to ecosystem function. And you mentioned the grasslands in that answer. What role do grasslands and native prairies play in carbon sequestration? Incredibly important. So partly because they cover such a large area here in Alberta, we've got roughly 10 million hectares of, of, of grazing lands and about 7 million of that is is native and another 3 million or so of, of planted seeded pasture. So really, really large spatial footprint. But the other thing is because these are perennial lands, you tend to store and retain more carbon over time. So where we have taken these perennial systems in the past and we've plowed them under and we've chosen to grow annual crops on them, we typically tend to see this large reduction in soil carbon. And if you look globally, this is a global phenomenon. This is not unique to Western Canada. Uh, if you look globally, you will see that where perennial grasslands are plowed under and used for annual cropping, there's typically a loss of anywhere from 30 to 55% of the soil carbon. And if you add that up over tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of hectares worldwide, it basically means that you have this ongoing source of carbon, which is now going up into the atmosphere. So a lot of people are not aware that, you know, when you think of global CO2 levels in the atmosphere, most people just immediately think of fossil fuels, that all of the CO2 increases due to fossil fuels. That's not actually the case. A significant portion of it is due to fossil fuels. However, there's also a sizable portion that comes from land use change. And that includes taking perennial grassland systems and converting them into annual production where they're being routinely cultivated and disturbed. And it also comes from deforestation. So the beef industry, because it relies so heavily on these perennial grassland ecosystems, it is likely to maintain these grassland ecosystems and thereby prevent them from further contributing to these rising CO2. So it's a really important way to counteract further increases in our atmospheric CO2 just by conserving and maintaining those grassland ecosystems. And it's, it's very closely tied to the beef industry. If we didn't have the beef industry, more of those lands would be lost. You've kind of answered this already in that question. But how is this different from management approaches in annual cropping systems, even ones that are promoted to improving carbon sequestration? Yeah, so to, to understand these annual cropping systems, you, you know, and the, the footprint that they've had, you, you have to actually go way back to where the initial conversion occurred. So there are programs in place that reward producers, for example, for implementing minimum till and reduced till or no till. And the idea is because they're practicing reduced tillage, that that's going to lead to a small but tangible amount of carbon gain over time. So, but what's ironic here is that 
where those programs exist, we're actually paying producers to put more carbon into a, an ecosystem that is carbon impoverished simply because we converted it to begin with. So you think about this perennial grassland, and if it had 100 tons of carbon per hectare to begin with, we cultivate it, and suddenly after 10 years, we're down to 50 tons of carbon. And now we're going to pay producers to start adding a little bit more carbon back. And maybe we get to 55 ton or 60 ton, but we're still 40 tons per hectare short of what the initial perennial grassland had. So, you know, the, these cropland environments, and it's not that I'm saying they're not important because they are, they, they contribute important uh, commodities that the world relies on in terms of our food production chains and our food security. However, we need to understand that where we're using these croplands, we are very much, we're relying on a large stream of crop inputs, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, tillage, and so on, in order to manipulate and control the ecosystem functions within them. Ecosystem functions meaning water storage, nutrient cycling, and, and solar energy gain, which is basically that source sink cycle. All the carbon is coming from, from the atmosphere and going into plants. In perennial systems, especially our grasslands, we're not doing that. Those systems are much more reliant on trying to use natural feedback cycles. So relying on, for example, the inherent properties of the grassland itself to self-regulate and maintain its production. So as an example of this, a lot of our croplands are relatively shallow rooted, which means that they are much more susceptible to drought events when they occur. In contrast, our grasslands have these really deep, well-developed roots, and that makes them much more drought resistant. So that's how we're better able to withstand drought in grassland environments. And thinking kind of further from um, just the carbon sequestration standpoint, how has land conversion from perennial grasslands affected other ecological goods and services? If you take a perennial grassland where you have a really rich polyculture of many different plant species, you think about all of the pollinators and all of the songbirds and all of the biodiversity that it's housing and then you eliminate it and replace it with a monoculture, the impact, for example, on everything from pollinator diversity to uh, obviously floristic diversity, plant diversity, and all the songbirds that rely on that um, is profound. So there's huge impacts on biodiversity reductions. Uh, but we also know it that affects things like water storage, for example. So if you take large watersheds and you cultivate 90% of the lands within that watershed, you know, you can think of the grassland as kind of the skin of the soil. And those perennial grasslands are protecting not only the soil, preventing it from blowing away or washing away, but they also act like a sponge to hold water in place so it can go into the ground. But if you take that watershed and it's 80% cultivated, you've removed a lot of that skin. And so now not only is the soil going to be blowing away, but when you get significant rainfall events, let's say large thunderstorms or flooding events, that water is basically going to rush down into the bottom. And so you're going to go through these flood events and like we had in Calgary in what is it, 2013. So 
making sure that you have really healthy grasslands upstream from any of these areas where you're worried about flooding, that's a very important ecosystem good and service that, that we need to be thinking about on a much larger scale. So water storage, biodiversity retention, habitat for whether it's game species or species at risk, these are all incredibly important in addition to carbon storage, in addition to forage production for livestock. We've talked quite a bit about grasslands, but what role do wetlands and forest areas play in the picture of reducing emissions and global warming? Both of them very, very important. So I've done work here on on wetlands in central Alberta for for a long time. So wetlands only comprise about 4%. If you look spatially, they only cover about 4% of central Alberta. So there's little pockets. And so often we might think of those as sacrifice areas, you know, because they're really hard to manage at least on their own. However, even though they represent only 4% spatially, they're usually providing more like 8% of the biomass because they tend to be so productive. So they tend to be real hotspots for productivity. And they also tend to provide relatively high quality forage. So if you add that further in, they're providing more like 10 to 12% of the forage, or at least of the crude protein yield within those landscapes. Now, on top of it, because they're so productive, it also means that they tend to be large sinks for carbon. Because remember, our plants are, that's our photosynthetic factory through which we're removing CO2 from the atmosphere and putting carbon into the ground. So we really don't want to treat wetlands as sacrifice areas. We want to make sure that we're thinking about the health of our wetlands and maintaining the vigor and growth rates, because that's going to help us both in terms of making sure we have lots of forage available, drought-proofing our operation, because that tends to be often an important source of emergency forage when we get a dry year. It's the wetlands that keep us going and maintaining that carbon storage over time. Same thing applies with forests. So I've been part of a, a research team here at the University of Alberta for many many years looking at agroforestry and the key role of agroforestry. And when I talk about agroforestry, you know, most many people think of maybe uh, uh, planted shelter belts, and that's one type of agroforest, but there's also natural hedgerows, and there's also silvopastures. So this is a mixture of where you get, let's say, aspen mixed with grassland. Those silvoforests, so the, the forests that we find embedded within our pastures or even along the edges of our fields, store an enormous amount of carbon. Now, we've actually quantified it here in central Alberta. And we've also looked at rates of land use change in terms of forest loss. And it is very significant. So when you add up forest loss and the amount of carbon we've actually lost by eliminating those trees, where we're continuing to undergo land use change, and you look at the carbon valuation of that, because we know what the carbon's worth. It's worth you know, a significant amount. The federal government prescribes that. And when you look at that additive loss of carbon from the loss of agroforests, it amounts to several billion dollars with a B. So it's a huge amount of carbon that we're actually losing. And I would argue even from a grazing perspective that forests do all kinds of things that your grasslands don't do. For example, they're another form of emergency forage during drought. Grasslands often dry down and, and 
you know, run out of water much earlier than the forest. The forest stay greener in the understory. So it's an important stockpiled form of forage during drought. During heat events, and we saw this at some of our U of A research stations in 2021, when it was 36 degrees, all our cows were congregated underneath the aspen, giving them the relief that they needed from the incredible heat so that they weren't as heat stressed. So these forested environments, yes, they store a lot of carbon, and yes, we're losing them due to land use change, but from a beef production perspective, they're an insurance policy, again, to mitigate against things like drought and heat waves. According to the Government of Canada website on greenhouse gas emissions, agriculture is rated fifth out of seven sectors shown for the amount of emissions and accounted for 10% of the total national emissions in 2020. Relatively speaking, the amount of global greenhouse gas emissions on an annual basis that agriculture is responsible for is a fairly small percentage of the total emissions. So why do you think that the conversation seems to have such a focus on agriculture rather than other industries? I think there's several reasons for it. The first one is because the spatial footprint is so large because it covers a really large area. And, and, and because we're dealing with a large area, it means that if there's a way to implement best management practices in order to increase the stocks of carbon within there, it means that the, the scaling potential, so the potential to, for example, counteract some of the impact we're having through, let's say, fossil fuel burning on rising CO2 is very significant. Okay, so that's, I think, one of the main reasons. It's it's purely a function of the of the size. The other one is that, as I said earlier, where we've taken cropland and we have or where we've taken perennial grasslands and converted it to cropland, we know that we've lost a lot of the carbon within those systems. But that also means that there's the potential to go the other way. So if as a society and as a society, meaning through consumer purchasing power and or through producers making the fundamental decision, they decide to convert their land from annual production back to perennials, we can potentially reverse some of that pattern. So we, we can increase that sink of CO2 back into the soil by re restoring or reestablishing perennial systems. So I think that's why there's so much interest in agriculture, this sheer geographic size and the potential scaling effect. Plus, there is this potential through land use change, counteracting, for example, the loss of perennials by restoring them or even fine tuning our cattle grazing management practices across tens of millions of hectares has a potential to markedly alter, you know, the, the, our greenhouse gas footprint. And when you think of other industries, there's probably not that opportunity, right, to do that restoration process and have a positive outcome out of it. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there, there may be in things like forestry, right? But they are, right. and they are, they're clearly doing that, where they're looking at what's the optimal rotation and what's the difference between the rates of carbon sequestration in, in different phases of the production cycle and so on. But I think agriculture is one where it's just so visible. It's also connected to our food supply chain. So it's a very high profile one because consumers are more and more interested in where does their food come from? What is the environmental footprint of that food? And where are they willing to put their purchasing dollars? 
That's a really good point. If listeners are interested in finding out more about that study, I will link the website into the show notes. And again, it was on the Government of Canada website um, on greenhouse gas emissions. At the Western Canadian Conference on Soil Health and Grazing, your presentation covered a number of research findings from recently published journal articles. Can you share some of the overarching themes and key findings? Absolutely. So we've been working on, you know, quantifying the impacts of grazing and specialized grazing systems like the adaptive multi-paddock or AMP grazing that I referred to earlier in looking at how this impacts carbon and even plant community dynamics and so on. So I think there are two big themes that came out of it. Uh, The first one is we had this network of over 100 sites across Alberta, where we just looked at long-term grazing effects as opposed to what happens when you remove grazing. And and these were moderately grazed grasslands. So one would think that they're basically sustainably grazed. And what was really intriguing is that when we looked at everything from plant diversity to plant biomass to carbon stocks, we actually found positive effects of continuing or maintaining grazing. So we saw net increases in plant diversity, largely through because most of these grasslands evolve with grazing. They actually rely on grazing. So some degree of herbivory is actually needed for there to be a balance among the competition of the different plant species. So what you get is this net increase of plants that are released from competition under moderate grazing. We also found that these grazed grasslands actually were more productive in many cases. You know, whether it's because of some of the changes in plant species competition or that increase in diversity. So these are positive feedback loops that we're seeing. And the net effect of this is we actually found a higher ecosystem carbon stock where we had continued grazing. Now, this is important because, you know, in some regions of North America, you hear people talking about, let's stop grazing, let's shut down grazing. Well, that notion is silly, given that A, these grasslands evolve with grazing and they actually rely on grazing, and that the continued presence of grazing is actually able to increase everything from productivity to carbon storage. So why would we ever do that? You know, the real question is how we graze, not whether we graze, but how we graze. For example, moderate stocking rates I mentioned. The other question that we've really been looking at is how can we fine tune? So how can we really adjust the pattern of grazing in order to optimize our environmental goods and services? And this is where we've looked at this AMP grazing. So the AMP grazing is, again, taking these large areas, breaking them into small areas, and then using a high density of animals for short periods of time. By that, I mean one to three days and then getting them out of there and giving a long rest period. And we're seeing a whole range of benefits. It ranges from improvements in water infiltration, improvements in plant productivity. We're seeing an increased potential to actually consume methane within the soils, especially at high temperatures, interestingly enough. Uh, and we're also seeing higher soil surface carbon stocks again, which would make sense if you think about that I mentioned we're getting more biomass production. So more biomass production should parlay into an increase in soil organic matter, and indeed that does occur. So we still have some questions as to, you know, what can we further fine-tune the nature of those grazing treatments to optimize our recommendation for producers? But the evidence is actually very compelling that grazing is not only compatible with maintaining, but maybe even increasing 
ecosystem function, including carbon storage. And I had a note here to ask if you have a list of related publications or articles that you would be willing to send me to add to the show notes so that if listeners are interested in finding out more, they can go to those and do some reading up on that. Absolutely. I will send them to you. Perfect. Thank you. To paraphrase the comment that there are as many grazing systems as there are producers, how do you tackle studying the impact of grazing management systems? What a great, great question. So in our, a lot of our past work, we've done what we call retrospective studies. So a retrospective study is where you go out and you measure what's there at a point in time. And then you collect detailed management information from, from the producers in order to try to figure out what are the activities that led us to this point. So you're basically reverse engineering or reverse interpreting anyways, how you got to a given point in terms of what you see in a pasture. The alternative is that you implement a controlled study. A controlled study means you actually have a starting point, you implement a new treatment, and then you track changes in that metric over time. Controlled studies are expensive, in partly because you got to wait over time and you have lots and lots of measurements. And because carbon changes very slowly, it might take five or 10 years to actually manifest a statistically significant difference in, let's say, soil carbon stock. And this goes back also to what we talked about earlier, that carbon is really variable across these landscapes. So it's really hard to measure because you got to make decisions on where do you measure, how many places do you measure, and so on. How often do you measure? So, you know, the past work we've done, a lot of it was retrospective, but we are now branching out into a different phase through what's called the living labs approach. And so this is a federally funded initiative that basically sponsors co-development. Now, so I'm leading a, a grazing component here in Alberta, and we're also working with a living lab in the province of Saskatchewan with a number of other people. And these living labs are really about working in a partnership with individual ranchers. So the ranchers identified the best management practice that they might be interested in implementing. In many cases, it's adaptive multi-paddock grazing. We then look at their land base and we develop a, a plan for implementing a AMP, adaptive multi-paddock rotational system, that is specifically suited to their strategic goals. It's suited to their climate, their soils, their vegetation, and their operation. It has to fit within the economics of their operation. And then we basically will be measuring the baseline carbon stock and greenhouse gas fluxes, and then tracking those over time as they implement the adaptive multi-paddock grazing system. So it's a very different way of approaching you know, the, the question, in part because it's done on farm, uh, but also because a lot of producers will tell you seeing is believing, right? It's one thing if I tell someone that they can expect this response, because this is what we found in our research. It's a whole nother thing when a producer applies it to their own operation and they see and experience the real changes in plant growth and soil and so on. And do you have a timeline kind of for that study or when listeners could expect to have access to some kind of results or beginning findings? So 
Unfortunately, people are going to have to be patient because it's <laughs> literally just starting. So we will be doing our baseline sampling in 2023. And then we are developing the, through the co-development management process, the, the BMPs right now. And we'll be starting those later on this year. But as I said, carbon and greenhouse gas fluxes are slow to respond. So the first phase of the living labs here in Alberta will run for five years. And we're hopeful that the federal government will then renew it and that we can then continue on the monitoring of these on-farm operations and what's happening. When you're tracking things like carbon and greenhouse gases, it has to be a long-term undertaking. It has to be a long-term investment. And that's what we're hoping will be the case here. That sounds really exciting to me. So that'll be something that I'll have to try and follow up on. What differences do you see between the impact of conventional agriculture versus regenerative practices in terms of sequestration of carbon? Yes, I think it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about, you know, conventional agriculture strives to maximize yields and get rid of any of that variation over time. And it does it through high inputs. We're adding in anything that we think is limiting to plant growth, whether it's pesticides by getting rid of competitors or whether it's fertilizer or whether it's irrigation or whatever the case is. We're, We're trying to maximize. But in the process, we destabilize the ecosystem. We create a lot of risks, potential for groundwater contamination. There's potential for erosion. There's potential for negative consequences to pollinators and and, and so on, or or to even insects that are helpful to our crops by controlling some of the pests. So regenerative agriculture looks at it very differently. It looks at it as a functioning ecosystem and tries to understand how we can implement a particular management practice without throwing the agroecosystem out of whack by using the natural feedbacks in order to enhance and maintain the productivity and do it at lower cost, lower risk, lower environmental footprint. So it's it's a different management philosophy, period. And what practices would you say that a producer could start today or in this upcoming year that would help to increase the carbon sequestration on their farm? The very first and most basic thing that they can do is think about their stocking rate and make sure that they're aligning their stocking rate with what their particular land base can actually provide on a sustainable basis. If you're removing 80 to 90% of your forage and you're leaving very little carryover, what that means is you've got very unhealthy plants. It means they're not going to grow very fast the following spring. It means that the root systems are probably really shallow on those plants. It probably means that you've got a lot of undesirable and weedy species that are starting to creep into that particular pasture. And it means you probably don't have enough litter to even do fundamental things like conserve water. You know, one of the most basic management practices on on pastures is to make sure you leave enough litter to keep your soil cool and provide for a, a way for the water to infiltrate and not be evaporated, not be lost. So just making sure that your stocking rate is consistent with what that grassland can provide and providing that extra buffer zone in case you get a, a dry period, one year or two years of drought. Stocking rate is really important. And the other one is if you want to go beyond that, then you got to start fine tuning 
how you graze, okay? How much you graze is the stocking rate. How you graze is really about the grazing system. And it's then thinking about what do those plants need to really maximize their growth rate? And that could be by implementing, let's say, rotational grazing in which you get really tight control over where, when, and how often each plant is grazed. Are you giving it enough rest time in order to reach its full potential during the regrowth phase through the rest of the growing season? And there may be benefits in terms of increasing the uniformity of forage removal or forage harvest within each one of those paddocks. So through a combination of you know, making sure that you're using a sustainable stocking rate and implementing a rotational grazing that makes sense, that can help achieve your economic objectives of forage production, beef production, and your environmental objectives, which is carbon storage. And it's not just carbon storage, it's also organic matter accumulation under your feet, since those two are closely correlated with one another. For producers who maybe aren't familiar with calculating stocking rate and looking at the amount of grass that they're growing, would you say that they can think back on what their previous year looked like and then use that picture, I guess, in determining whether or not they've had too many cows out or they've had their cows out too long when they're thinking about reducing stocking rates, but maybe don't just don't have that background in those calculations? Yeah. I think that's one way of going about it. You know, when you think about what kind of a year you had last year and how much carryover did I have, the producer probably won't know until this spring comes as to just what kind of vigor their plants are going to have because the proof is in the pudding based on their plant growth rates, right, the following spring. My advice would be, so if you're starting grazing on a new piece of ground, maybe it's a, a, a quarter you just bought or it's something you just leased and you're not sure about what the what the appropriate stocking rate is, Start out lower, start out conservative, and then build on that. Because, you know, if you find that it, you use that new piece and you look at it and you go, wow, you know, I, I had a lot of carryover, probably more carryover than I would have expected, and I had normal rainfall, then you can up it, you know, add another 10% the following year. It's easier and lower risk to start low and build up than it is to start high, crash the pasture, and then, you know, you may be looking at destocking for a couple of years or really cutting back on your use. So in which case, you know, then the economics come into play because people are going, wow, what do I do with these extra animals and, and creating hardships that way? Usually there's a lot of information that's available as well online. For example, most of the provinces have really good information on, on what's the relative level of productivity and what are the sustainable stocking rates. Alberta's got it, Saskatchewan's got it, I'm sure Manitoba's got it as well. And there's lots of resources available, usually you know, a technical staff, extension staff that can provide you with a pretty good idea. But they're gonna base their information off what's in the literature. And usually it's proof is in the pudding. So start out, I would say, a little bit on the conservative side and then build up based on how well your pasture is doing. If your pasture is really performing well and you have excellent regrowth rates, then you know you are well within your sustainable level and you can inch up from there. And eventually you'll find the sweet spot where you know you need to be. Keeping in mind that droughts will happen, right? You could get four normal years in a row, but then you could get two years of back-to-back -back drought and then all bets are off and you have to have a plan for that. 
That's really good advice. Yeah. There's lots of, lots of information online and I'm sure by calling MBFI or by calling Manitoba eggs extension specialist that producers can find that information pretty quickly if they're looking for it. Sometimes it seems as though soil organic matter and soil carbon are used interchangeably. Can you define how they're different and the relationship between them? Yes, absolutely. So carbon is only one component of organic matter. So organic matter is this rich mix of all kinds of different things. It includes the what we call the raw parent material, which is the clay, sand, silt, the rocks, and all the the, the the core mineral material, but then it also includes all of that plant material that's being added to the system is being incorporated. It includes all of the soil microbes, all of what we call the soil microfauna. So those are all the, the nematodes and mites and all the little critters that live in the soil, the earthworms and so on, all, all the fecal matter that's being added and cycled over time. So Organic matter is much, much more complex. One key element of the organic matter is the carbon stock. So when we focus on carbon, we're interested in carbon stock simply because we know that whether that soil is a source or sink for carbon is going to affect atmospheric CO2. The organic matter itself I like to think of it as the the engine of the actual ecosystem because it houses not just carbon, it houses the the nutrients, the you know the phosphorus, the nitrogen, all of the micro and macronutrients that are essential for plant growth. It also is the rooting medium. So when we talk about soil tilth, you know, which is a kind of this general term for how good is your soil for supporting plant growth, it really reflects everything from water holding capacity. So how much water can the soil hold? How much nutrients can be held within it? What we call the nutrient holding capacity. It also reflects the rooting opportunities. So can roots easily go down through the soil? These things are all affected directly by the organic matter and by the associated tilth of the soil. So the good thing is that generally the carbon level in the soil and organic matter are correlated because a very big component of organic matter happens to be carbon. So if you have higher organic matter, you usually have higher carbon as well. So, but they're they're different and they each contribute to ecosystem function in a unique way. And from your perspective, what are the biggest benefits to producers in increasing the soil carbon on their land? So as I just mentioned, if you if you build up your organic matter, it means that when you do get uh, rain events, the water holding capacity is going to be higher. So that means that more of that water can be held in the surface soil and be made available for your plants over time. It means that there's a higher amount of nutrients, period, full stop. That means nitrogen, phosphorus, you know, calcium, sulfur, all of those trace minerals that are needed. So it means you have you're going to have a more productive environment if you have higher organic matter. It means your plants are going to be able to root better. It means seedlings, your grasses, when they're trying to germinate and regenerate themselves, they're going to be more likely to be able to survive at the soil surface because of that that enhanced establishment within higher organic matter. So there's just a myriad of different reasons why producers really want to have as much organic matter as it can. It, it, it really represents the, the heart or the engine of your entire production system. 
A topic that seems to be coming up a little bit more recently or kind of as a bigger keyword, I guess, right now in some of the conversations is talking about carbon credits. What do producers need to consider when being approached with opportunities in carbon credit markets? I think there's a few really important considerations. So the the first one is to understand, you know, the size of the carbon market right now. And by that, I mean, when you look at the the magnitude of the payments that are often being given for carbon, it's pretty small. Okay. Now it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that it's trivial because the value of that carbon is actually going up over time. And so because the federal government has basically prescribed the rates of increase of, of, of carbon valuation, in theory, the size of those carbon payments should go up over time as well. However, Producers really have to be aware that if, for example, they sign on to some kind of a program where they're turning over their carbon credits, okay, it does raise some questions as to, one, what proportion of the income from those credits are they getting and what proportion is someone else getting? A lot of these carbon offset programs are associated with aggregators, which then, you know, kind of compile it. And then the revenue is basically shared between the aggregator and the individual producer. Producers need to be aware of that. The second one is what about reversibility? So what about you know the liability if you're getting paid for carbon credits that are associated with, let's say, restoring perennial grasslands, but down the road, you or your children or somebody decides to reverse that? Are you liable for releasing that carbon? Is there a liability and, and how big is that? The third one is really, this is something I've been thinking a, a lot about. I, I think if you look at the, the mechanisms through which a producer can get paid for carbon, direct consumer is not a bad way to go if you can do it. And what I beat by that is that there are consumers that are willing to pay a premium for their beef because of how it's produced. That basically means that they're going to go out and seek sources of beef that they know are produced in an environmentally sustainable way that is consistent with their values. And that may mean paying a very significant premium. So if they know it's grass-fed, it's produced in a way with a low-carbon footprint, and they pay an extra 20%, and if you can directly put that in the pocket of a producer... That's a very, very powerful tool, partly because you avoid all the, the middle folks, right? You, you avoid the aggregators, and it's basically a premium that's paid for the way the beef is produced now. And you're not necessarily on the hook for something that may happen 5 or 10 or 20 years or 50 years from now down the road. So the downside to that is that consumer spending can be fickle. <laughs> People can decide to do it one year, but then if we go into a recession... They may not do it another year. And so whether those benefits are going to come on a reliable basis, that's going to be determined by the consumer. But on average, we're moving to you know, a, a marketplace where consumers are much more savvy and they're paying much more attention to where does their food come from and how is it produced. And they're willing to pay. And I expect that to continue in the future. I feel like that's just such a timely conversation. The carbon credits are so new and that relationship between the consumer and wanting to know how their food is produced and where their food's coming from and the carbon footprint that it's leaving is a very new conversation. And so it's it's kind of an interesting opportunity and an exciting opportunity for producers to be able to get on board with that 
just as it's becoming so popular in that conversation. What advice would you give to encourage a producer considering management practices that have shown promise in sequestering carbon? My first advice would be to make sure it fits with the rest of their strategic plan for their farm. Many producers, when they're adopting, for example, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, they're not doing it necessarily for carbon storage. They're doing it because the frontline benefits help through things like increasing the amount of productivity that they're getting or the utilization of the forage, which means they can maybe get a lot, you know, a little bit of extra boost on their overall stocking rate. Making sure that it fits and is consistent with how they want to produce, you know, whatever their, their commodity is, in this case, beef, and that it's aligning with their production goals is first and foremost. The carbon gain that they're going to get is going to help them anyways, as I said, because if you have a more productive plant community, you're putting in more carbon, you're accruing more organic matter, you're improving soil tilth, and that is going to have spin-off effects on the productivity and therefore the carrying capacity of their pasture. If in the end, there's a vehicle or a mechanism for them to make more money because of that added carbon, that's gravy. For me, the way I look at this, this is gravy, and this is where the accountability and the tracking and the predictability that we're working on with our research to try to understand, can we quantify and know for certain you know, how specific management practices lead to more carbon? We want to create a compelling business case so that producers can get paid for that, but it shouldn't be and probably won't be the be-all, end-all. The business still has to be viable based on their beef production system, period. So, that, you know, that's the way I, I look at it, that there's synergy between accumulating carbon and the benefit to their direct bottom line through more forage production, more efficient forage use, and a more profitable herd, period. So, and, and the carbon benefits, I, I think, go hand in hand. They feed into the agronomy, but eventually... I'm very hopeful and I'm very confident that it will feed into a carbon marketplace, which it is already. There are more and more operations that I said, as I said, are going direct to consumer and they're getting paid a premium for it. And I think that probably is, is going to be the largest area of growth. And you've talked a little bit about this already, but what is next for this work and where is more research needed? It, it, it really is about tr trying to fine tune how specific grazing management practices can be applied on a prescriptive basis to know where, when, and how carbon is going to change. And it's not an easy process, partly because these grasslands are so variable, uh, partly because there's this time element, because carbon changes very slowly over time, which means you have to measure these things over an extended period of time to be sure that you're actually seeing tangible change in carbon. All of these fronts are kind of moving forward. You know, how do we quantify carbon? How do we do it at landscape levels? And what is the predictability of different nuanced grazing management practices? That, that's where we're going right now so that we can build a much stronger business case for uh, policymakers, for, you know, our, our federal government, provincial governments and so on, that they just can't turn a blind eye to the benefits of grazing and grassland conservation and stewardship. And, and carbon. And to kind of wrap up our conversation today, 
Is there anything else that you'd like to share or anything else on this topic that you think that we've missed? We've covered an awful lot here today. The one thing that I I guess I'll leave people with is that you know, beef production has faced many, many, many challenges over the last 25 years. You know, BSE, really problematic markets and droughts and all kinds of things. And through all of this, the marketplace has continued to be there. Ranchers are proving that they're very hardy and very resilient and very innovative. And so, you know, when I talk to a lot of producers, they are at the forefront of kind of adapting their management over time. Hopefully, we will get to the point where they will be fully paid or compensated one day for the full suite of ecosystem goods and services that they're really providing. And so, you know, right now, a lot of their revenue is coming from the amount of forage and the quality of forage and how that translates into the straight up metrics of beef production. And that's it. But we know that these grassland systems do far more than that. As I said, the water storage, water purification, um, biodiversity, and so on. A lot of these things are unvalued, even though we know they have value, but we just haven't quantified them very well. And the mechanisms are not necessarily there for them to get compensated for it. So at some point, I'm I'm hopeful that we will get to the point where producers will be fully compensated for all of those ecosystem goods and services, whether it's direct through the marketplace or through other overarching policy mechanisms. We see it in Europe. We see it in other places where producers are getting paid. In some cases, they make more from alternative goods and services than they do from the livestock. That is a very different approach. And I think we are moving in that direction slowly right now, but we will get there. So hopefully that will give them some hope that will reassure them that they're headed in the right direction and that their revenue portfolio will increase. Let me put it that way one day. Kind of thinking back on the conversation and the comments that you just made, as a beef producer, it it does make me excited to think about where the industry might be going and some of the opportunities that might be coming back to producers for the hard work, like you've said, they've put in. It would be so exciting for producers just to get a little bit of a break and that acknowledgement of the wonderful things that they're doing to help on a global level. So that just gives me so much excitement. And thank you to people like you who are putting in the time and the effort to make that conversation stick and to to make sure that the government can't just turn a blind eye to it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll leave you with one other thought as well. As an industry, I think we need to do a better job informing the general public, including the consuming public. Many of them are not aware of, A, the complexity of management that's that, that's used both on farms and ranches. That it's, it's not just really simple management, that there's a lot of complexity, that there's a lot of risk, and that producers are accepting and experiencing that risk, but also that consumers can have a profound influence on what's going on in the agricultural sector through their, not only their spending habits and and how they utilize those dollars, uh, but also we need to tell the the good stories. We need to tell the stories that grazing can increase biodiversity. We need to tell the story that grazing can increase carbon. That, that that grassland soils are a very significant sink for methane. 
many people don't think of that and they're not aware of that. And that message has to get out to the consuming public. I continue to push that. There are lots of others that are continuing to push that as well. And we will get there. That's a really, really good point. If producers want to find out more information, how can they contact you? So if producers are are interested in more information, they can, the best way is probably to email me. My email is edward.bork at ualberta.ca. So it's E-D-W-A-R-D dot B-O-R-K at ualberta.ca. If I can't answer their question or get the information, I'll refer them on to someone who can get them the information. Wonderful. Thank you. And I will put your email address into the show notes just in case there was listeners who missed that. Thank you so much for all of your time today and all of the work that you're doing. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know that there's a lot of things that I have learned and need to go back and think about. I've just, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. We wanted to let listeners know that this episode was prepared and recorded in January of 2023, as I'm taking a short leave from MBFI. Because of this, some of the conversations may seem like they are relating to past information or slightly out of context with the current time. We will resume regular recordings in the summer of 2023. Thank you for your patience. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at mbbeefandforage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.